All right, I want to begin this morning by doing a little experiment. It's probably uh, one that you've seen before. It's quite a simple one. You've maybe taken this test before. But in a moment, I'm going to show you a picture, and I want you to think for a moment to yourself and reflect on what it is that you see, okay? Here it is. Let's take a look together at our, at, at our image here. All right? Now, how many of you, in looking at this, see an old woman? You can raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. How many of you see a younger-looking woman? And how many of you saw both? Oh, nice. Okay, so that was a pretty even mix between all of you, okay? Now, when you know, if you look at this, it's called an illusion. It's a matter of perspective. It's how you look at something, how you view something. But we also know that our perspective or how we view something shapes the way that we view the world around us. It even influences how we view and think about ourselves, which brings us to another popular picture. Looks like this. Now, I will say, on Friday, I felt really good about where this sermon was. I was like, man, this is, this is perfect. And then Josiah calls me on Friday afternoon. He says, Ben, I've got this thought for my children's message on Sunday. I said, well, tell me what it is. And he proceeds to tell me what it is, and I just start going, hmm, okay. <laughs> That's great. You know what? Uh, reminders are awesome. No, okay, but mine's water. <laughs> this one's water, right? And I'm going to actually use this later, so this is perfect. Didn't plan it. Now think about that. Half full or half empty. For you, everyone. Maybe you thought of this when Josiah was up here talking to the students. But for everyone, which one are you? Which one do you typically fall into? Are you someone who normally looks at life and you're like, oh, that is just half empty? Or are you someone who thinks more on the positive side of things? You're like, yeah, that's more half full. And if you think about it for yourself, you actually can probably pinpoint numerous times in your life where you've actually felt both, simultaneously or all throughout, right? This is more than just a perspective, this is a reality for us. And if we think about this last week, when it comes to the life of Jesus and his followers, this has been a week that has been full of glass half full and glass half-empty moments. We think of this past Sunday, this Palm Sunday, where we remember seeing Jesus welcomed in to the streets of Jerusalem. There was a lot of joy and excitement. People had lined the streets. They had waved palm branches. They had put their coats on the ground. They welcomed him into their city as king. And then we fast forward a few days, and we see Jesus eating the Passover meal with his disciples, and he officiates this first communion service. He washes his disciples' feet. He tells them then that Oh, by the way, I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. One of you is going to do this. He tells them that he's going to be mocked by the same crowds that had just cheered his arrival days earlier and that he eventually is going to be killed. And then we went with Jesus to the garden. We heard him pray. We saw him be arrested. We heard the false accusations that the religious leaders and the chief priests were bringing against him. We saw the crown of thorns and the whips and the trial before Pilate. We saw the cross and we saw Jesus placed in the tomb. Glass half full, glass half empty. So much of this week started off looking really well, only to have it turned upside down and on its head. The glass looked to be way less than even half empty. And for Jesus' friends, those that he had left behind, there was a lot of emptiness and doubt and sadness and defeat. 
All hope seemed to be lost, and their perspective, their view of everything was no doubt in a tailspin. But as the saying goes, a lot can happen in seven days. Because this was not the only storyline that was happening. This was not all, these were not all of the events that were taking place. Everything from a visible human perspective seemed to look and appear one way, and yet God was doing his thing and having his way. Things were more than they seemed. Things were more profound than they appeared. And just days after Jesus' body was placed in the tomb, God literally shakes up this perspective. And we get to read about it together from Luke 24. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. I invite you to follow along with me, whether in your own Bibles or on the screen as well. Luke 24, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 12, this is what we read. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I would definitely consider myself to be a reactionary person, meaning that the, the, the way my face looks usually tells the story of how I'm feeling about something almost all the time. And my wife tells me this all the time. I think I'm acting really cool and chill and expressionless, and she's like, oh, you're totally upset or sad or angry or whatever the deal is. I'm like, what? So I don't have a very good poker face. I guess this is the face that I was dealt with. Uh, a lot of people tell me it's perfect for radio, and uh, that's, that's just great. But how about you? Would you consider yourself to be someone who reacts in a humorous or engaging or embarrassing way when things are unexpected and come up, to, uh, up in your life? Maybe you're someone who's very reactionary. Oftentimes, this is like the essential ingredient to most people's senses of humor. You probably have people in your life that their main goal is to just get someone to react. They say or do something solely for the sake of having someone give a reaction or a response. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're that person, right? And everybody loves that, right? But that that ends up being the funniest part about the whole thing because for all of us, facial expressions can be hard to control. Our initial response and reaction when something unexpected happens or you're caught off guard by something, you have no idea what you're going to look like, what you're going to do, what you're going to say. And yet seeing someone's genuine initial reaction can be priceless, I mean, why do you think when it's someone's surprise birthday party, people pull out their phones and they're like filming this person as they're walking in and then they keep it rolling to capture all those overly embarrassing things and when they're crying and snorting with laughter or whatever and oh, look at what you did, right? We show them that. Or we think of the person who is on like one of those TV shows, the home makeover shows and they move the truck and the couple turns around and they see their house, Right? You can totally tell when someone's being genuine. And I'm not knocking the home makeover shows, but come on. Like that's, that's, that's maybe take 10, maybe, on that one. <laughs> Initial reactions can be really good. 
And if we look a bit closer at our text today from Luke's gospel, we see that one of the intriguing parts, at least one of the things that stood out to me, was some of the initial reactions that were given to us by some of these characters in the story. From Luke's account, he writes about kind of two main players in these opening verses, the women who came to the tomb and the the disciples of Jesus, and both give some pretty memorable first reactions or first responses to what they saw and what they heard. Let's start with the women. The gospel writers tell us that the women had started their journey to Jesus' tomb very early in the morning. It was still dark. It was the first day of the week. And they were bringing with them various perfumes and spices that they were going to use to finish the embalming process on Jesus' body. Everything about the weekend, about Jesus' death, had happened so quickly and was so just unbelievable, it took them off guard, that they didn't finish the process before they had to put him in the tomb because of the Sabbath day. It was rushed, and so they were coming to the tomb to finish the job they had started days earlier. And as they're traveling to the tomb, the gospel accounts that we read, the women's minds were just stirring with questions, with potential conversation. Perhaps they were each recapping the previous week and kind of talking about how deeply saddened they were by all of these events. Mark's gospel tells us that one of the things that they were discussing was how are we going to move this heavy stone that's in the way of the tomb? And then perhaps in Matthew's gospel, we can account for that, oh, maybe they thought, oh, we could ask the Roman guards. Maybe they would let it. They're they're guarding the tomb. Maybe they would help us move this stone. And as they're talking, they come to the tomb, and the main point for us here is clear, that the women are not expecting to find Jesus alive. That's like the last thing on their minds. They're going to the tomb fully expecting to embalm the dead body of Jesus, which explains their reaction when they get to the tomb, and they notice several things. First, no Roman soldiers, nowhere. Second, no stone. It had been rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. The word that Luke used here in the Greek gives us the idea it was just flung to the side, this heavy several thousand pound stone just flung to the side. And third, they enter and there's no body. They couldn't find the body of Jesus anywhere, only the empty grave clothes, and they were shocked. Verse 4, the women we read stand there, they're wondering about all of these things. What is going on? What has happened? What does all this mean? I would put their initial reaction as puzzled or confused at best. This is not what they were expecting to find. Not what they were prepared to see. And we see a similar response given by Jesus' disciples after hearing the news. Like the women, they're feeling the depth of despair and agony that comes from everything they had seen and heard of over the weekend. They were equally confused and doubtful when the women returned from their early morning trip to the tomb and they're telling them what they had seen or what they had not seen, for that matter. And Luke tells us that the disciples did not believe the women. In fact, they thought it was complete nonsense. They said, how does any of this make sense? This seems too good to be true. You're just seeing things or making things up. Or maybe they're thinking, Mary, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make us feel better, but it's really not working. This is making it worse. But one of Jesus' followers, who we met this morning, Peter, Peter reacts slightly differently. And the Gospels tell us that both Peter and John run to the tomb. John gets there first. But in Luke's account that we read today, we get Peter's perspective on what his reaction is. And and the the, the words of the women, they intrigue Peter just enough that he's got to go and see this for himself. And he sees the, the, the tomb. 
He sees the stone. He sees the empty everything. He sees the empty grave clothes. And then Luke tells us that Peter walks away with the same initial response that the women had, wondering, pondering, marveling at what he had seen. Now, I found it very interesting to think that some of the earliest skeptics of the resurrection, some of the first doubters that Jesus was alive were his own followers. They didn't believe it initially. They had no idea what they were looking at. They didn't know what it meant. And on one hand, if you think about it, their perspective that they had been brought into over the weekend was, you could probably say, glass half empty. After all they had seen and experienced, they were not prepared for what they were seeing after this week that they had had. The despair, the grief of their loss, the complete upside-down nature of everything had allowed doubt and uncertainty to gain the upper hand. And for most of us, maybe you were reading along, you're like, how in the world didn't they get that? Like we can almost look, almost like on this side of the story, almost like with a sense of pride or something, like, well, how did they not figure that out? Where was their faith? Didn't they believe that? But if we think about our lives, if you think about your individual circumstances, think about periods of adversity or challenge in your life, how good is your memory when it comes to trusting God and trusting his promises? When something really hard is going on in your life, is your first thought like, oh yeah, but you know, God's going to come through? Maybe it is. How often do you run to the Lord as your source of hope and strength when you're in the midst of some really despairing times like these folks undoubtedly were? Now maybe you're in a season like that right now. Maybe you're facing some really difficult challenges or adversity. Maybe life is just not going your way or things are spinning out of control. They don't seem to be working out. Maybe God is seeming to be silent like he's removed from your situation or like he's locked in a tomb somewhere. Maybe it seems like that. Or maybe you're in a season of real personal and spiritual challenge. Maybe there's broken relationships in your life that are just beyond fixing or that you can't seem to really get a hold of. Maybe you're stuck in this cycle of sin that has you feeling defeated and crushed and you feel the guilt, and you feel the shame, and you feel the accusation, and you feel so deflated and empty. Life can sometimes feel like a glass that is half empty. And I want you to hear this. The point of this is not, oh, you just need to change your attitude. Okay, no, that doesn't work. The point is, well, just need to think positive thoughts. Like, pull yourself out of that way of thinking. That's not how it works. There's only so much you can change. That's a real struggle. All of us can have those moments in our lives, whether it's personally or collectively, where doubt and skepticism can just come and it just is hard to break free from. It can cloud our minds. It can, it can drown out this voice of hope that God desires to bring in. Those gentle ways that he is wanting to remind you that he is still there, that he is still faithful, and that he still cares. And I think one of the most powerful impressions we get of this opening scene has to deal with the stone. The women show up, they see the stone had been rolled away. Peter runs to the tomb, he sees that it's empty. Think about this, the stone was not there 
The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could come out. Like that's sometimes how I thought about it. Like, oh yeah, Jesus was like sitting there waiting like for the stone to get moved. No, like we know he can come enter as he pleases. He's gonna do that with his disciples just a few days after this. He's gonna enter through a locked door. No, the stone wasn't rolled away for his purpose, but for ours so that we could see in and be convinced and know and have our skeptical hearts just go, how else do you explain this? This must be true. Which brings us back inside the tomb with Joanna and the two Marys. Remember, they are bewildered. They are shocked. They don't understand what they're seeing. The Bible tells us they're wondering about all of this stuff. And as they're standing and wondering about these things, and they're probably thinking to themselves, could this get any stranger? What do we read? Two men show up dressed in clothes that are sparkling and flashing and are brighter than lightning. And the women instantly bow down and these angels ask the women this most incredible question. This is one of the most convicting and comforting questions in the entire Bible. And I literally get chills every time I read it. The angels ask the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? I mean, think about that. There is so much in that question, is there not? It's a question that is so simple and yet so profound. It asks so little, but it tells so much. Why do you look for the living among the dead? What sense does that make? When you're in the grocery store, you would not look for an apple in the onion bin. You wouldn't, unless it's a mistake. You wouldn't expect to find a Brussels sprout in your Easter egg unless your parents are really mean or super health conscious, one of the two, or both. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Jesus is not here. The angels say, he's not dead. You can check. He's not in this tomb. You can look in that tomb. You can look at all the tombs in Jerusalem. You won't find him. He's not here. He is risen. He's alive. And the women are astonished. I mean, needless to say, they're on emotional overload. And the angels must sense this because they continue in verses 6 and 7. They say, remember. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. Remember, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. The angels remind the women. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. Exactly this way. In his own words, Jesus had told his friends and his followers that all of this was going to happen. Now, I'm a dad. I've got three young kids, and so I know all about selective hearing. And I think for adults, we have our share of that too, don't we? We can choose what we hear, what we take in, what's revealed to us, and what comes later. And all throughout the Gospels, we see evidence of Jesus trying to communicate this with his disciples. And in fact, the angels use this Greek word dei, which is the same word that Jesus used whenever he would talk about this. And this term literally means it is necessary or it must be. So the angels are reminding the women that, reminding us today that all of these things had to happen. They were supposed to happen. They must happen. They were essential to God's plan. All of these things happened because they were supposed to happen. And then we read in verse 8 that they, the women, remembered Jesus' words. They remembered his words. They remembered what he had said. They connected the dots and their eyes were open. And in their remembering of his words, they believed. 
Jesus will later appear to his disciples. You notice that's one thing that is maybe missing. Well, they don't actually see Jesus. He will later appear to his disciples. They'll get to see him for himself, for themselves. Other gospel accounts detail appearances that Jesus makes at the tomb. The Apostle Paul writes about that on one specific occasion after his resurrection, Jesus appears to 500 people at one time. So the big question that remains for us this morning, so this happened. So Jesus rose from the dead. So what? So what? What does all this mean and why does it matter? For the women at the tomb... And for the disciples, these events led to a pretty radically changed perspective. And it was a changed perspective that really wasn't involving just tilting your head to look at a picture differently. Or choosing to say, oh, I'm going to say that this glass is now half full. It wasn't that kind of change. It was bigger than that. Knowing and eventually seeing that Jesus was alive opened their eyes to something entirely new. And as they reflected on, as they remembered his words, the Lord allowed the pieces of the puzzle to fall into place for them and they were filled with this inexpressible hope and joy. Because Jesus had said this was going to happen and because these events did happen, just as he said, if this were true, then that meant that everything that Jesus said was true. And what happened? And so if Jesus can make good on a promise like rising from the dead after being three days dead, then what barrier could ever stand in the way of God coming through in your life and in mine for you? What would ever stand in his way? That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, there's absolutely nothing in all of creation that can separate you from God's love. Where's the proof? It's in the empty tomb. So that same hope and confidence that the women at the tomb and that the disciples share, we are meant to share in that same hope and confidence and joy. And we get the advantage. We live on this side of Easter Sunday. We can look back and know and be reminded and go, wow. We are invited to remember and to know Jesus' words like the women did and be set free. We are invited, you and I, are invited to have full assurance that God has indeed taken the guilt and the punishment for your sin. He's done away with it. He's taken it on himself and he's paid the price for it. You can have hope that death does not win. Not in your life, not in mine, not in the lives of your loved ones. That death is not the end of the story. That there can be life anew through Christ. And so this Easter perspective that we're looking at, that we live in, it's really unique. It's this completely backwards, upside down thing. We think of the, the angel's question to the women again in the tomb. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And this perspective completely changes the way that we think about things. Easter flips the script. It reorients everything. Think about this. Because of Easter, now things that are dead can be made alive. Sinners are now forgiven. People who were formerly outcast and apart from God, they are now welcomed into the family. People who are empty can be filled. People who have been defeated by sin can now find victory in Christ. 
That's the thing about Easter. It's this completely backwards, upside down perspective. It's this special equation where empty, here it is, empty actually equals full. Think about that. The empty tomb, the empty cross, the empty grave clothes. This is not a glass half full, glass half empty sort of thing. That's why King David can write in Psalm 23 as he's echoing all these amazing things that God has done for him and given to him and provided for him. David can honestly say, my cup is not empty. My cup overflows. So may you dwell and experience the fullness of Easter today. For you, for your families, as you celebrate the risen Savior. He is not here. He is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word to us this morning, the gift that it brings us, this joy that we can have today because we remember and celebrate the resurrection. And this is something that we don't just think about today, but that we live in and live out of tomorrow and the days that follow that you give to us with this new perspective on life. That we can look back on the empty tomb and know and be confident that you have forgiven us. That we are your children. That there is hope beyond the grave. And there's hope for our lives today. And so Lord, may we be May we experience that hope in us. May we seek to share that hope with those around us. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, for his death, and for his resurrection. In your name I pray, amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.